0: If you think about it, um, you know you don't deserve it. If you think about it, you know you need it. You completely depend on others for it. Sometimes you experience it and you never saw it coming, but it is what got you through the day. It is what made your week that week. And it even comes up in conversation, and you just have to share it with other people when you uh, come to especially think of it throughout the year at different times. In some of your darkest, most uh, scary, weakest moments in your life, it is what saw you through. It happens to be Knowing that someone genuinely cares about you. Knowing that someone genuinely cares about you. It's when somebody uh, consistently does little things for you. Just, just, Just things that you know are just making your life just a little bit easier just a little bit easier. Because we all know that it's, it's actually a little bit more convenient to swoop in now and again and do something big and grand and uh, something uh, very noticeable. But those people who are there for you and do those little things week in and week out, what we might even consider to be the, the lesser things, oh man, those are people you know genuinely care about you, Or when you learn that you've got people on your side who, who have your back and defend you and stand up for you even when you're not present because people who really care about you, they don't need you there as an eyewitness to stand up and defend you. When somebody remembers and knows how to uh, handle or approach uh, you on a certain date, a certain time uh, of the year. Because if we're honest, sometimes the calendar, uh, the, the date of the month actually does uh, have a bearing on and affects our ability to get out of bed, you know, or whether we do or not. It affects how we interact with other people. We wake up on that day and we think about what happened that day 17 years ago or three years ago or last year at this time last year. You know, we, we think about those things. And when we've got somebody in our corner who, who knows how to approach us on that day, knows what we went through on that day, because I'm obviously not just talking about remembering a birthday or an anniversary. I'm talking about remembering that That's when you lost that loved one. That's when you lost that sibling, that parent, that spouse. Having somebody like that, you know they genuinely care about you. Of course, there are several other ways we could go through a list of ways that, man, you got somebody like that and you know you have someone who genuinely cares for you. When somebody like that is in your life, but what if two people have never met? Is it possible to have someone who genuinely cares about you uh, like that in your life when they're not... In your life, physically, when they're not there, when they haven't seen you, met you face to face, is it possible? Can genuine concern be shown in a situation like that? How would it be shown? How would the recipient of the care uh, know that, that, they, that they've got someone in their corner like that? How would they experience it, I guess, is what I should say. As we uh, continue in our message series through the book of Colossians, seeing what Paul wrote to the Christians in Colossae, I want you to listen to what Paul wrote to them in the very first verse of chapter 2. We're ready to move on to chapter 2 now. He says this. He writes this to the Colossians. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face... Paul wants the Christians in the city of Colossae to understand that even though he's miles away in Rome, even though they're separated by distance, even though he's never even met these people face to face, that he struggles on their behalf. And that word struggle, I want you to remember that that should again be pictured as uh, an athlete contending for a prize. The, the immense uh, agony that he's willing to go through to uh, have victory, the great heights of striving and straining that he'll push himself to in an effort to defeat his opponent. This is what Paul wanted the Colossians to know. He was putting himself through, struggling for them on their behalf. Well, how did he struggle? he's, He's probably 1,300 or so miles away from Colossae there in Rome at this time. How did he struggle on their behalf when he's that far away? I hope that the answer uh, doesn't disappoint you, but I believe it's thoughts and prayers. That gets discounted a lot these days, right? But, but that's what I believe it is. I think it's thoughts and prayers as, uh, as it's uh, become popular to say and popular uh, to kind of talk down and say like, you know, oh, enough thoughts and prayers, why don't we do something about it? But, but thoughts and prayers are not a light thing. I think it would be wrong for us to think that in this situation, this was some kind of weak effort or this was some kind of, well, this is all we have. This is our last resort, you know, wishful thinking. Hopefully it'll do something. I don't know. I'm not even superstitious. You know, I hope we would be wrong to think that it's that kind of thing, that, that Paul just every once in a while remembers the Colossians and when he does, he says, oh yeah, I need to, they're on my prayer list. I gotta pray for those people and throws up a, a quick one-liner and then forgets what he was talking about to God and moves on with his life. It would be wrong for us to think that it's something like that. Earlier in this very letter, Paul said in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, he said, uh, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. And then shortly thereafter, still in chapter 1, in verse 9, Paul wrote, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. And then later on, we're going to get to this and spend some time on it, but right now I just want to point out to you, in Colossians chapter 4, the last chapter of this book, in verse 12, Paul told the Colossians, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. That's how he was earnestly laboring. If you, if you remember that Greek word for labor that we talked about last week that Paul used in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. It's the same word here in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. Apparently, Epaphras labored or endured agony, struggled, fervently contended for his Colossian brethren. And by what means? What was the method? Prayer. It was through prayer. Guys, the way the Colossians were being prayed for was no small thing. This, they, they had a massive. Uh, Fervent prayer uh, circle going around them, uh, going up on their behalf. I feel uh, pretty confident that the Paul was struggling at least as much as Brother Epaphras here, and quite possibly even more so. In Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verses twenty-seven through twenty-nine, we already looked at or touched on uh, just a little bit of this uh, a couple of weeks ago. But he says, "I've been in labor." and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst often without food and cold and exposure apart from such external things there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches you hear that who is weak without my being weak and who is uh, led into sin without my concern Paul was deeply Deeply concerned for the spiritual welfare of these uh, Christians who were part of the church at Colossae, and for those who were at Laodicea, and for all the church, even those he had not seen the church worldwide. And Paul tells us in verse 2 what he hoped, what he hoped that uh, would be the result from this struggling on their behalf. He writes, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, And attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. Paul wants the hearts of the Christians here to be encouraged. Uh, Now keep in mind his goal, mentioned in chapter 1 and verse 28, we talked about that last week, he wants to present every man complete in Christ. That, that's Paul's goal. He doesn't want anybody to fall short. He's not like, well, you know, the, the rule is you're going to lose 10%. You know, no, he wants every man to be uh, offered, presented, complete in Christ. That's his goal. He doesn't want them to become discouraged, but encouraged. He, doesn't, he knows if they get discouraged, they might slowly but surely fade away, uh, lose their faith, run to something else, give up the, the hope that they have in Christ. And the way that he desires their hearts to be uh, encouraged is to have them knit together in love. Uh, According to Colossians chapter 3 verse 14, love is the perfect bond of unity. That's what Paul writes to them a little bit later in this letter. He says that love is the perfect bond of unity. It's like brothers in arms who will uh, give up their lives for one another because they love each other. They've been through some stuff together and they're not going to let the other go down without a fight. We're in this together. It's the perfect bond of unity. There's nothing that's going to hold us or the Colossians or anyone uh, together in any situation better, stronger than love. That's why Paul calls it the perfect bond of unity. And he wants uh, the church there in Colossae, the church in Laodicea, and Christians, churches everywhere to have their hearts knit together in love. Bound, fastened, sewn, connected, united, woven, whatever word you want to use, he knows that love was the connection they needed. Love was the perfect bond of unity. And then Paul expected their hearts to be encouraged, and he expected those encouraged hearts, uh, having been knit together in love, to attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. The idea here is that they would possess like wealth, like something extremely valuable, that they would possess the bold confidence that comes from having a, a solid grasp on the gospel and on uh, Christian doctrine in general. We could, we could put, the, put it under the whole umbrella there. The Gnostic teachers, that they were... Um, being threatened by, I mean, they weren't threatening them, but you know what I mean. Their teaching was threatening the integrity of the church. It was threatening the strength of their faith. Those Gnostic teachers uh, in that area, they made knowledge sound like something that was hard to get a hold of, something hard to, to grasp, and uh, it was an exclusive thing for you to even be invited for them to, uh, to share it with you. And they made it like, you know, well, you know, we'll see. You might be able to get to the third or fourth heaven if you can understand what we have to share with you. You know, that's what those teachers are offering them. And then Paul comes along and encourages them to attain to the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. That had to sound better to the Colossians. I I like full assurance and understanding, the full assurance of understanding. More so than someone who says, you know, reach, grab, strive, grasp, and maybe you'll get it, maybe you won't. I like this a lot better. Now, this is classic Paul here. Um, he, he's a little bit wordy. So verse 2 uh, keeps on uh, going here and I apologize. No, there it is. Um, Verse two kind of keeps on keeping on. He just, he's rolling. He's building one phrase on top of another, and he says, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. Uh, So this would be the expected and desired result of this understanding that we're talking about. Bear in mind, Paul's motivation, again, is to keep the Christians on track, on that path to being presented complete in Christ. And of course, true knowledge is going to uh, result in a uh, a greater understanding of God's mystery, a full knowledge, a true knowledge of God's mystery. Christ himself, this says, which would uh, make these Christians less vulnerable, less susceptible, less exposed even to this false teaching that's going around. Now, Paul continues in verse 3, he says, in whom, referring back to Christ who he just mentioned, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this short description slash explanation is absolutely dripping with some of the Gnostics' favorite terms, but used in a fiercely anti-Gnostic way, right? They, they love to talk about the hidden Knowledge and wisdom, and that is the treasure that boy, if you are um, if you are so fortunate, we might invite you to come and listen and see if you can understand, see if you can receive the knowledge. But Paul here is making it clear that all knowledge, the treasure of true knowledge and wisdom, it's all found. In him, And when he says hidden in him, he's using that to, uh, I don't want to say dig at, but to, to make it clear that he's, he's kind of uh, speaking against what the Gnostics are, are feeding them. But he's not using it to say that it's hidden and, you know, ready or not, you know, here you come, see if you can find it. You know, it's not a game of hide and seek. He's saying, oh yeah, hidden knowledge, all true wisdom and knowledge is hidden in Christ. I'm telling you where to find it. He's not saying go and see if you can find it. He's saying I'm telling you where it is and anyone if they look here will find it. That's the way he's using the term hidden. Letting you know where it all is. Go get it. It's for everybody. He's letting the Colossians and and anyone know that there's nowhere else they needed to go but to the Lord. Then Paul in verse four in my opinion comes to so far uh, what we've covered so far in the letter his clearest uh, communication of concern. Uh, And of what he's concerned uh, about. After he said everything he said so far, he says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Paul, why have you been writing everything you've been writing so far? Why are you saying all this? Why are you hammering away at us that it's all in Christ? Life is in Christ. Uh, We need to really understand the the mystery, God's mystery, and it is Christ. Why are you hammering away that true knowledge and wisdom is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ? I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. See how clear Paul is in verse 4? Now, the Greek word uh, for delude here, um, it's a a word, um, they're all funny to pronounce, but it's paralagizomai, paralagizomai, all right? Uh, I'm going to ask you at the end of the service if you can pronounce that, so don't forget, all right? It's used to describe a situation where someone purposely uses false reasoning to lead someone astray. They they use an argument that, if we really think about it, that, that doesn't make sense. Just because you say this is true doesn't mean this has to be true. But, but you're using false reasoning to lead somebody astray. And then the Greek word for a persuasive argument here, now this is a fun one, it's pitanalagia. Pitanalagia. Now that is the one that you really need to remember how to pronounce. It's very important. There is a final exam at the end of this. It's only five questions. They're all Greek words, okay? And I'm only going to mention two in the whole sermon, so good luck with the other three. This word right here, it's a term that's used sometimes, uh, it's used to specifically refer to arguments or discourse in like the court of law, designed to look right on the surface, but in actuality, it's in error. Very similar terms, only slightly different, but it's, it's a kind of a court of law sort of phrase here, a word, and you can see how Paul... <laughs> is effectively writing to these Colossian Christians something like, I say all of this so that no one will trick you with arguments that sound reasonable but are designed to get you to believe lies. That's what Paul is effectively saying. We can see that he's not just concerned about the false doctrine itself, but the, the, the underhanded ways, the schemes, the tactics, the strategies that are being employed to propagate such false doctrine. He's worried about both. He's, you know, I worry about myself and you guys with false doctrine as well. And naturally, I'm not just worried about the false doctrine. I'm worried about how someone might convince you or I to believe something that is not right. Now, we know we need to saturate our minds in the word of God so that we can quickly identify what is right and wrong. So I'm not saying like, oh, we're all just floating out here in such great danger. But I'm saying it's only natural to not only be concerned about the false doctrine, but also... The schemes, the tactics, the strategies to understand and look for and be concerned about how that stuff is going to be, try to convince us, how they're going to not always use the most honest, upright, you know, well, here's what I'm really trying to share with you. No, they'll share something uh, a little different that sounds good, a persuasive argument, but it's really a, a lie. It's not the truth of God. Paul continues in verse 5, writing, For even though I'm absent in the body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. So Paul was absent from, or absent, not absent from the body, (laughs) absent in body, meaning not there in uh, the flesh with them, hadn't, to our knowledge, had never met them, right? He's absent because he's in prison in Rome at this time. Had it not been for that, I'm sure he would have visited or at least made every effort to visit this Lycus River area, the Lycus Valley, uh, we call it, where you would have Colossae and Laodicea that he's mentioned here specifically. And uh, just six miles over on the other side of the river would be Hierapolis. He probably would have come and visited these people if he could, but he's around 1,300 miles away. So that's what he means by not being there in, in body. Nevertheless, he was with them in spirit, he says. This is nothing uh, weird or mystical or uh, particularly spiritual. Paul constantly thinks about them. That's what he's saying. And prays for them. And prays for what is best for them. That's what he means by with them in spirit. Toward the beginning of chapter one, Paul uh, bragged on the Colossians a little bit. He wasn't meaning to brag on them in, that, in the sense that we say, but he was sharing with us something that to us, uh, we might call it uh, bragging because it was telling us something good about them, right? Paul, uh, he says that he gives thanks to God because of their faith in Christ Jesus and the love that they have for all the saints. Now, Paul says he's rejoicing to see their good discipline and the stability of of their faith in Christ. This shares some more good news about the Colossians with us, doesn't it? Because if we look at this, apparently the false teaching that, you know, I think after a few weeks, we're all kind of getting a little concerned about these Colossians together. This shares with us that it at least hasn't gotten to the point um, that we might call considerable progress or significant uh, progress. It hasn't taken over or anything like that because Paul says that that he rejoices to see their good discipline and the stability of their faith. Uh, I highly doubt that Paul would say that, that he would say they have good discipline and their faith is stable if they didn't have uh, good discipline and their faith wasn't stable. But it's likely that Paul's doing more here than just complimenting them or uh, letting them know that, uh, I see what you're doing over there. You know, I think he's saying, keep up the good work. I think he's sharing this to try to get them to continue doing what they're doing. All right? This kind of psychology works on, uh, I think, Anyone, any age, right? You want to compliment, encourage, brag on, spotlight, highlight, praise the things that you want to see continue, right? Uh, Any of you that are, you know, parenting or grandparenting, there's some good advice for you. Encourage and praise the things that you want to see continue and even grow. And many times that's going to work you. And I think that's what Paul is up to in verse five. Now verse six says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. So therefore, obviously pointing back to what he's said so far, this is connected. Therefore, we might say, since I'm struggling on your behalf, that you would uh, have true wisdom and knowledge in Christ and not be led astray, right? Therefore, live your lives in light of the gospel and and live it like Jesus is your Lord. He puts Lord at the end. I know it's not at the very end uh, in the English translation, but in the Greek, it's at the end, putting the emphasis on the fact that he's Lord. All right. Now there's a big, um, again, I don't think Paul's being a smart aleck, but I'm going to say it this way. There's a big slap in the face of any kind of Gnostic teaching or pre-Gnostic teaching that might be uh, creeping into the world at this time. I mean, sorry Gnostic teachers, Jesus is the Christ. Oh, and by the way, Christ is Jesus, just so we get that clear, because the Gnostics uh, had all kinds of weird teachings on that. And he alone is Lord. Paul is encouraging the Colossians uh, very clearly, very simply here, to not turn away from the riches of knowing Christ that they were blessed to receive, and to allow him the control in their lives. To allow him to control their lives as Lord There's a a walk being described here. There's an action. There's a particular way being exhorted or encouraged. And it's the Lord's way. It's the way you live when Jesus is the Lord. Not just when you say he's Lord. Or not just when you say Lord, Lord. But when you actually live like he's Lord. Verse 7 of our text says, Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. Just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Now firmly rooted, uh, obviously metaphor here, uh, it's like a, a well positioned tree, with big, strong roots reaching deep down in to rich soil. Again Paul's intent is to see these people faithful to the very end. And having been firmly rooted, Paul adds, and now being, okay, we're in the present tense, and now being built up in him and established in your faith. Both of these, like I said, are are actions that are written in the present tense, meaning that these are to be continuous, ongoing processes. These are not things that you do one time, these are things you continue to do throughout your life. The Colossians needed to continuously take action to grow in Christ, to be growing in Christ, And the result of their growth would be continual establishing and further establishing in their faith. And he says, just as you have been instructed just as they had been instructed. So you can see clearly that Paul is just pleading with them not to waver, not to, to let strange doctrines or new philosophies to, to creep in and to, to displace them from the path that they had found and were on, not to, to, to be thrown off of what they had been shown, but to keep doing it the way they had been taught. That's what he's doing here. And then it's interesting, but it's no surprise that Paul adds the note, and overflowing... Uh, where am I? Let me get here. And overflowing with gratitude. Overflowing with gratitude. Uh, this too is written as something in the, the present tense, It's uh, to be an ongoing, regular thing, something you need to make a habit of, all right? The teaching they had received and they had embraced, it was something to be grateful for. It was something valuable that they should, uh, that it was worthy of of thanksgiving worthy of their gratitude and when you regularly express not just think about not just know in your heart that yeah I mean I if I think about yeah I'm thankful about it when you regularly express talk to God about it tell your brothers and sisters about it. when you regularly express your gratitude you don't take whatever that is for granted you don't take whatever that is for granted you don't forget it you don't forsake it Romans chapter 1 verse 21 teaches us um, that people who, it's it's really a warning I guess, it teaches us there that people who didn't give honor or thanks to God, they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Giving thanks is powerful and we would be foolish not to do it. So this is Paul's heart for these Colossians. These these first seven verses of chapter 2, this is Paul's Heart. This is how great a struggle he had on their behalf and for those who were at Laodicea and for all those who had not personally seen his face. That's you and me, right? Have you guys seen Paul's face personally? Anybody ever met Paul? Well, neither have I. And neither have I. So, so what can you and I learn from an apostle of Jesus Christ who has written and said that he struggled on our behalf? Well, what can we learn? I think we, we ought to make sure we sit up and do learn something because he struggled for us. What well, we, we see here that Paul not only has a desire, but a, a realization that those who love Jesus, those who want to follow him, those who have received him, put their faith and trust in him, those who desire to remain faithful until death, Paul sees a need for a solid connection. He sees a need for a solid connection, and in our text today, I saw three areas where we need to make a good, solid connection to, to, to keep us from going astray, to keep us from being separated from the hope laid up for us in heaven. Three areas, and we're going to buzz through them quickly, because I know some of you saw that pop up there, and you're like, whoa, the sermon title slide just came up. It's okay. Mainly, we needed to teach through what was going on, and we can buzz through these lessons real quick, okay? First of all, we need to be solidly connected to his family. That's the church. Solidly connected to his family. In the first part of Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul described an important goal of his struggle on our behalf. Remember what that was? He said, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, we have all kinds of room in the church today, here at Liberty, but elsewhere, the church worldwide, all kinds of room for improvement in this department. That's, that's not a dig. That is honestly, uh, I mean it literally the way I said it. We got all kinds of room for improvement. Let, let's do it. You know, let, let's, let's build out. Let's do this. Let's, let's improve here. How many Christians do you suppose lose heart and lose faith because their hearts are not being encouraged? because they lack that from their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they become discouraged and there's nobody there building them up. Nobody there providing some cheerleading, serving them, showing that they care, stepping in and doing some of those little things that we talked about at the beginning of this message, remembering them, defending them. Well, Jake, if they had real faith in Jesus, they wouldn't put their faith and their trust in people. Well, those are excuses that we use to, to justify when we don't want to put in the time or the effort, when we don't want to expend the resources, when we don't want to inconvenience ourselves or the lives of our families to serve other people, when we don't want to be our brother's keeper. You guys, there's nothing righteous about letting people depend on Jesus when you are right there too. That, that's an excuse. The apostle Paul, the reason he's writing this letter is to encourage people because he's afraid that if he doesn't, they're going to fail. They're going to fall off the wagon, if we want to put it that way. He's letting them know that he cares. That's what he said. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And in verse four, why? He doesn't want anyone to delude them with persuasive arguments. It's the whole reason he's writing this. He's writing the letter to fight for their faith, to fight for their souls, to fight against these forces, these outside forces that are more than willing to spend their time and their resources to to pull them away to their teaching. Church, I get it in a perfect world, which we're not in. In a perfect world, people wouldn't need you. People wouldn't rely on you. But here in the real world... Church members become depressed and dejected and downfallen and, and downtrodden and dismayed and distraught and downcast and dispirited, down in the dumps, down in the mouth, downhearted. And we need to be there to pick them up. We need to be there to lift each other up to where we ought to be. Paul says this encouragement happens when our hearts are knit together in love. And yes, that word for love there, uh, actually here's a third Greek word, it's agape. In case you wondered, in case you guessed, it is agape. That's the the word that, that talks about that brotherly love. It's active. It's involved in each other's lives. It's searching and serving, always on duty, looking out for one another, intentional about putting the needs of others above your own, meaning treating them as though their needs were more important than your own. That kind of love should be uh, knitting our hearts together. It can knit our hearts together. And guys, we could accomplish this by next week if we'd all step up and do it. If we'd all decide today to do this, we, we would be there. We would arrive by next week. Do you want to stay the course and all go to heaven together? You can, you can say yes. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah, then let's do what the Bible says to do here. Set aside, if it's pride, if it's uh, feelings of awkwardness or shyness or selfishness or anxiety or any other reservations that you have, we can do this. God has blessed us with each other. He's blessed us with each other as a gift. Let's make the most of it. Let's make the absolute most of it. Let's make a solid connection with our church family. We need it. Secondly, uh, Paul's struggle teaches us the importance of being solidly connected to his word. In the the second half of verse 2 and going on up through verse 5, we see what a role knowledge and understanding plays in our salvation. We all know how badly things can go when we don't have good information. We all know how uncomfortable we feel when we're unsure about things, when we haven't received proper training, perhaps, or some kind of situation like that. We felt the the lack of confidence that we have when we're uncertain about the details of a situation. Well, verse 2 gives that beautiful illustration of the full assurance of understanding. feels good. It's that confident conviction. It's being well prepared to face situations in real life and having the wisdom to discern what needs to be done to honor God, to, 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 to please him. Doesn't that sound nice? To, to, to face situations in life and and be confident to have the full assurance that you understand what pleases God. You understand what his word says, what it means, to the point that, that you can discern his will in a situation. You can do what he's called you to do. I mean you can see why Paul calls it wealth, why he describes it as the, the wealth. It's valuable. We need to be solidly connected to the Word of God. We need to be actively involved in in saturating our minds in His Word, like I said before. And as we do this, our knowledge of Christ Himself is going to deepen. We'll have a true knowledge of Christ, it says here. There won't be these peripheral details that still create concern and doubt and even frustration. We won't question, why this? or, Or why that? And we'll protect ourselves from false doctrine, right? We'll be less susceptible to being deluded by these uh, persuasive arguments. People won't be able to make a smart remark and shake our faith. That's what we need. Oh, what, what, a, what a wonderful thing it would be if we all had a true knowledge of Christ, who he really is, what he's really done, and what he really requires. It would, it would save us a lot of confusion, a lot of division, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of heartache, and quite frankly, a lot of time that's spent, that's wasted, uh, chasing down some of these things. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 promises us powerful results if we'll do this study, if we'll really learn the word of God. Uh, Peter, leading up to this, he's pointing out how he and the apostles were eyewitnesses of everything they, they taught. They were eyewitnesses. They weren't just um, sharing something they had heard, okay? They had been taught this as as young boys about the coming Messiah, about God's law, but then now in the New Testament, uh, they didn't just learn it. They were eyewitnesses of this, of this part of Jesus' life. They were eyewitnesses, and in verse 19, like I said, he says there, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until, listen to this, here's, here's the promise of, of some power if we learn about this stuff, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Do you suppose that it's nothing more than a coincidence that Paul says the full assurance of understanding results in a true knowledge of Christ himself and Peter says here to pay attention to the written word until the morning star arises in your hearts and then over in Revelation 22:16, Jesus says, I am The bright morning star. I think a solid connection to God's word. Is far more valuable than we. Give it credit. I think it's far more uh, important. Than we can imagine. He who has ears to hear. Put that together in your mind right now. Thirdly and finally, Paul's struggle that he talked about in Colossians chapter 2 teaches us the importance of being solidly connected to his way. This is the the walk that we're talking about. This is the way of living. We see this in Colossians chapter 2 verses 6 and 7. It says, therefore as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. The religious world all around us has a strong tendency toward changing what church is all about like every couple years, right? There's always some new understanding that comes along. Some, uh, sometimes it's a, a new translation of the Bible that, that makes something a, a little wacky, puts it on its side or whatever. Uh, a new book comes out, a new study comes out, a new video comes out, a, a new teacher pops onto the scene and becomes popular. We need to be solidly connected to his way, It's easy to want to do things this way or to do things that way, but we need to do things His way. And people always want to go right and left, far and wide, when God's Word very clearly, very plainly says straight and narrow, right? It's very plain to see. And I would ask you, as you're thinking about this, what made you change? What made you drop the old and begin the new that has you now sitting here in This pew. I didn't even write that, and that was a little bit of a, a poem right there. You know, what is it that made you change the way you were living to start living the way you are now? It was Jesus, right? It was Jesus. It was His way that you took up, that you decided to to walk in that way. So, as Paul said, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, just as you received Him, just as you were instructed. Now that doesn't mean though, listen to me, that doesn't mean we never change. Walking straight and narrow doesn't mean we can be lazy and narrow-minded. That's not what this is talking about. Hebrews 13, 8 does say Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Isaiah 40, verse 8 does say the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, the word of our God stands forever. He never changes. His nature never changes. His word never changes. But many times you and I need to. We're not God. We're not his word. We don't have a perfect understanding of every uh, jot and tittle of his word. And we certainly aren't him. So sometimes we do need to change. Jesus' earthly ministry was spent convincing a bunch of people who had been literally raised on his word. If anybody was going to know it, it's going to be them. He literally spent his time teaching those people that they had it wrong. That they had heard it this way but it was really this way, that they needed to change. You see, sometimes we try so hard to stay the same that we actually do change in a way that that is not good, in a, a negative way. Sometimes we fight so hard for our traditional ways, for our comforts, for our opinions, and for our methods that a change happens on the inside. Suddenly we discover that we're worshiping the way rather than the one who showed us the way. That sounds way too much like old Israel to me. Just going through the motions, albeit passionately and zealously perhaps in some cases, but needing Jesus to come along and say, you've heard it said, you should do this, but I say, this is what actually pleases me. If we're going to dig in our heels, if we're going to make our stand, if we're going to refuse to move, we better make sure that we're standing in the right place, is what I'm saying. And that's right next to Jesus. Church, only when we are solidly connected to his family and solidly connected to his word can we truly have a solid connection to his way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you've shown so many of us that uh, it's, it's all hidden right there in your son Jesus. If we'll just look for him, uh, the Apostle Paul, your servant, has shown us exactly where true wisdom and knowledge can be found. And we thank you for access to that word. Such great access in the age that we live in to have so much of this written down for us so clearly. Lord, I just pray that we learn from it. Help those of us who are already in the family of Christ to get connected uh, in in a real way to that family we 've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your son, but uh, Lord, sometimes that, that transfer it, it doesn 't um, immediately become a, a situation where we 've been knit together in love, that our hearts have been encouraged by being knit together. We need to step out, introduce ourselves, we need to step out and, and serve each other, we need to uh, step out and, and give up our own um, conveniences. To sacrifice for our brothers and sisters and show them that we're there and that we care and Lord we know that that will uh, only create a, a beautiful cycle of people being encouraged and people uh, not wanting to uh, ever miss an opportunity to be together and to serve together and to um, serve you because that love that we have comes from you that's the love that we share and that it connects us so God help us to take the word to heart uh, this morning help us to Record this in our minds so that this week and the coming weeks and uh, throughout our lifetime we would live out what Paul has has said here in this uh, passage that he struggled over. That he struggled on our behalf, on behalf of the church at Colossae, those at Laodicea, those he had not even seen. He struggled Lord, I pray that we would struggle like he did for our brothers and sisters, that we would struggle like that to learn your word and that we would struggle like that to make sure that we are actually living the way that you've called us to live and, and that when we see areas in our life where uh, we don't align with your word, that, that we've seemed to miss the point and that uh, we were carrying out the actions but, but our heart was all wrong. Lord, help us to change that so that we can be more like you. Lord, we ask all these things humbly We ask all these things knowing that they're not easy, but we ask you to grant us the power, the courage, and the boldness, and the ability to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've never obeyed the gospel, I'd like to at least introduce you to it. Um, This Jesus that we're talking about here this morning, he's God's son. The Bible attests to that. His miracles attest to that. His signs attested to that. Uh, History that's been recorded shows us uh, very clearly that this was a real man. He really did these things, and there were just too many witnesses. Paul said it wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't hidden. It was done in front of world leaders on the world stage in front of people who could um, verify these things. The New Testament was distributed to the people who were alive when these things were going on. There were people still living, absolutely, uh, because the apostles uh, were still alive to write it and pass it around they distributed it to people who were on that hill when he preached that message who were by that pool when he healed that man who were at that uh, cross when he was crucified who were um, in that field the next time he taught there were people who received his word during those times it's true there are witnesses. There's, there's, there's nothing better attested to. Uh, we have uh, copies of all these histories and and poetries and wars and things that we just we we take that. Yeah, that's that's the truth. We've got eight copies of this written thirteen hundred years after it happened. We've got uh, eleven copies of, of this writing, and it was. 300 years after the person that was written after the biography of this king. Uh, It was written 300 years, 200 years, 900 years after he lived. And we just take those as uh, the gospel. But we have over 5,400 manuscripts. Written within 30 years. In, in one case, we got fragments of, of the Gospel of Mark um, within, uh, that, that may actually be an original copy, some of that that we've got uh, that was written by Mark. We, we don't know that for sure, but we have very recent copies within, um, you know, we've got, we've got prophecies of Christ that were written hundreds of years. The, the, the parchment we have was dated as hundreds of years before Christ lived. And so you can't tell me that these prophecies were twisted to make this Jesus having been fulfilled, that, that he fulfilled them. You, know, you, can't, you can't say that we, we change things because we have the writing from before he came on the scene, before he was ever born into this world. This is real. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't make believe. And albeit, I'll, I'll, I'll give you most churches in town—they're just putting on their ties and their jackets, and they're just going to church to, to mark it off, and they can't wait for the, the next meal. And I know, yes, we're having a pitching meal, so you're like, "Oh, the great time to say that." But, but, but it's just motions. It's just motions. It makes me feel good to be here. Um, But for other people, for the other 50%, it makes them feel bad for being there because they don't have the same clothes. They don't drive as nice of a car. They weren't quite as prepared for church that day. They came rolling in, and it was a little difficult for them. That's not what this is about. This is real. You have a sin problem, and you have a grave problem. Your sin makes you guilty before the God who created you, who you were built to honor but he gave you the choice so that you could decide to love him. Because it's not love, it's not obedience, it's not trust if you didn't have another option. But we've all sinned against him. We've all lacked that trust. We've all needed God to help us with our unbelief. And then when we go to the grave, it's the end and we don't have another chance. So we've got a sin problem and a grave problem. We've got to get this done. We've got, we got to reconcile ourselves to this God while we're here so that we can spend eternity with him. And so we don't come in here to put on a show. We don't come in here uh, to go through the motions. We come in here to learn to live our lives for this God. To learn to, like Paul said, to be encouraged so that we make it to the end. So that we are seeing each other and hugging in heaven one day. And that we're like, guys, we made it. It's real. So that that's real one day. That's what we're here for. And man... If you're here and you're like, I don't think I'm in that family. I, I don't think I'm part of that crew right now. Let's talk about it. Let, let's have that discussion. It won't, be, it won't be weird. It'll be full of grace. It'll be uh, just a, hey, here's, here's the facts. Here's the deal. Here, here's how God has shown his love. And you've got a question about that. Oh, I'm happy to answer that. Not from my own head, but from God's own word let's talk about that let's get you into this family there's, there's no one who's barred from it there's no one who's done anything so bad that they can't get into it let, let, let's get you in let's bring you into the fold get you into the ark before the storm comes All right, if you need to learn how to do that, uh, I'd be happy to talk with you about that uh, right after the service. We're going to stand and sing a song of invitation here, and this is a time uh, for those outside of Christ and those in Christ uh, to be thinking about uh, any changes that need to be made in your life, any decisions that you need to uh, set your mind toward.